In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been asking the question every time that we consider one of the passages, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what has been more implicit so far is about to become a lot more explicit in the passage we're looking at today, namely this, like what I said at the beginning of our worship, at some point, to follow Jesus means to come out from behind his shadow and to become public with that following, to act on his behalf, to speak on his behalf. It's sort of the natural follow-through of what it means to follow him. There's a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser who says, disciples of Jesus are fit for purpose when they are able to act as representatives of the kingdom of God. And that's sort of the focus of our passage this morning. What does it mean to be a representative? I will date myself by even referencing this, but you know uh, that show, Hee Haw? (laughs) And at some point in every episode, there'd be a guest that stands up there and says, hi, I'm from Drippin' Springs, Texas, population 4,728. And then the whole cast goes, salute, right? You want shows that would never be green-lighted today. Um, Now there's an update. Now it's a represent, right? You know, you speak up from where you are, where you're coming from. What does it mean to represent him? And for those of you that, some of you in this room, whenever you hear the idea of representing him publicly, uh, you immediately feel this impulse of timidity in you. Oh, I don't want to offend anyone. I, I just can't offend them, right? And then there are others of you who like, really don't care if you offend anyone. Um, but mostly you see anybody as just an opportunity and you kind of flatten them into something that you can sort of fulfill your obligation. Not, neither the, the timidity that somebody might feel or, or maybe the smugness that another might feel, neither of those really will ever fulfill the intent, and they're certainly not the way of Jesus. So what does it mean to represent him? We're going to listen to the first 13 verses of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and I think we're going to to find three things. We're going to learn three things about what it means to represent him. One, uh, that there's a struggle in it, newsflash. Two, I think he's going to give us a sketch of it. And, and three, then we need to ask ourselves the question, well, where do we find the strength for it? The struggle in it, the, a sketch of it, the strength for it. We're in Mark chapter 6. I wonder if you might stand just to hear what he had to say in that moment. Mark chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. He is back in the synagogue. And what is the synagogue but a place in which the Lord is represented to those who attend? You are here this morning in the equivalent of a synagogue in order to have who God is to us re-represented to you, re-presented to you in the things that you have forgotten or in the things that you have never heard. So Jesus, there in the synagogue, what is he out to do in his teaching or his reading? He is there to represent his Father to those who are attending. And it really is kind of a, a funny dynamic that's going on in the people who are present there with him in the synagogue. There is this weird mixture of astonishment and being scandalized by him that it's really kind of hard to square. They are clearly impressed with what he knows and what he says. They are, in the words there of Mark, astonished, not only at what he says, but in what he does and what he claims. So they're not saying, you're a fake. At the same time, though, they think he's too big for his britches. They, they recount to themselves, as you hear there in the passage, now wait a minute, this dude's a carpenter. And isn't Mary his mom? We, we know her, you know, nothing to write home about. And, and we know all his brothers and his sisters, and you know, they're just ordinary folk. So he is clearly out over his skis. He is making claims about himself and about truth and about reality that just doesn't fit with his lack of being credentialed. They are scandalized by him. They think, who are you to say what you are saying given everything that we know about you? It's not, it's not a familiarity breeds contempt thing. It's a, it's a familiarity breeds a very fixed view of who he is, what he could be. They are absolutely not curious at all. Their, their view of him is formulated and it is baked and it will not change. Um, reading this passage, it reminded me of, of the summers and winters I would come home from college. And, you know, you go to philosophy class, right? And you think you're the smartest person in the world. I've read Immanuel Kant, right? And you come home, and I remember distinctly sometimes sharing some sort of really profound thought I got out of my philosophy class. And I remember the 40 and 50-somethings that might have been in earshot of me looking at me going, oh, 
wow. That's profound. How much did you pay for that? Um, now, they weren't resenting me. Um, they weren't even making fun of me. But they were also maybe not quite as impressed with what I had said or knew as I was at the time. Now, that's, that's not what we're seeing. That's just a, a sliver. Not only do they think he is way out of line, but they are scandalized by what he's saying. They are upset by that. They think he has no place to say what he is saying, and they just can't square it. And they don't know what to do with it. And Jesus, look, if, if you and I are in Jesus' place, and we hear that kind of, who are you? What would naturally well up in any one of us is to defend ourselves, or to bear up, or to say, you don't know what you're talking about, or, or to really come at them, because they are, they just find me ridiculous. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. He doesn't push back. He doesn't fight with them. He just says, you know what? I kind of expected this. Uh, the people who are most familiar with me also have the most superficial view of who I am. And it says that Jesus wasn't offended by it. He just marveled. He, he, he can't believe they have this view of him given what they have heard. And it says he, he could do no good work upon them, or, or around them, except for maybe a few healings. And you first read that and you think, gosh, was their unbelief kind of like kryptonite to Jesus? Oh, I'm feeling weak. No. It's this idea that you can't fill closed hands. If you are bound and determined not to believe, then do not be surprised if he will not offer you anything that you might receive because you're not going to receive it. What do we hear here? We see the struggle in what it meant for him to represent his father to his people. What he was encountering was rejection. And it's not the first time and it certainly won't be the last. And the serviceable part for us, the point that we all need to wrestle with, is that whatever it comes to representing him, you know what? He, he says elsewhere, the servant is not greater than his master. If I'm going to take it on the chin, you will too. The struggle in representation is that the rejection he faced, you and I will face it too. If we are ever public in any way, just by what we do or whatever we might say, rejection is inevitable. And it's best that we know that on the front end. Because if we don't think we'll ever be rejected, boy, will you be shocked when it happens. Now, the reason that Jesus is rejected in that moment is because they just think he doesn't have the authority to make the claims that he does, given the reputation that they have of him in this very uncredentialed setting. So how are you, and what, in what ways do you and I encounter the rejection of Jesus. Let me, let me boil it down to maybe two main ideas that I think modern culture is most apt to reject who he is. And the first is this. Nobody thinks their struggle is large enough to need some sort of outside intervention to be of help to them. Where we are, we are very resourceful. We're excellent problem solvers. We network. I mean, there's Google, for goodness sake right? Surely there is a YouTube video to correct my problem. I don't need something outside myself. 
I don't need an intervention, and I certainly don't need it from some other, whatever divine source. And so for you to even bring up the idea that there is an inner condition in us, a corruption that is requiring of something not just outside our reach, but beyond human capability, you are already swimming upstream of the culture. And so Tim Keller, in an article that he wrote a couple years ago about how to reach the West again, he says this, Today's culture believes the thing that we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. That's where we are. That's when we are. We're very capable. Don't tell me I need to be saved. That's one way in which whatever Jesus is, or however you might position it, you will encounter rejection in that frame. But, let's, but let's, let's give some people the benefit of the doubt. Let's even concede that there are some people who are in this world who recognize, you know what, <laughs> there is a struggle. There is an inner corruption. Um, I do need help. The other place, the other theme, I think, in which you are most liable to encounter rejection is the idea of putting Jesus in some sort of primacy of place. That there is any kind of not just uniqueness to him, but that actually there are some parts of what he extols that are preferable to others. That what he comes and does and accomplishes and represents to us actually has more power and more explanatory power for our condition than other streams of wisdom. Um, have any of you ever seen the film that Martin Scorsese did last, a few years ago based upon the book by an author in Japan named Silence? Anybody see Silence? I've showed you a clip from Silence before, and it's a, it's, it takes place in the 17th century Japan. Two Portuguese missionaries have heard that their, their mentor, their discipler, has, to borrow modern language, deconstructed and dechurched and and decided that there is no truth in the gospel. And so these two missionaries, they travel to Japan to seek it out, to see if it's a rumor. And eventually, one of them, played by Andrew Garfield, when he's not playing Spider-Man, he shows up and he, and he has this encounter with his former mentor and also this Japanese envoy. And in this really strong sequence, the Japanese envoy kind of looks at Andrew Wake, uh, Garfield's character and he goes, why is, it that, why is it that you have to feel like you have to move somebody into your world when all of these faiths have just something to share. Now that's not in the book, but that is in the film because it's in Martin Scorsese's head, but it's also in the culture. This idea that, you know, there's so many traditions and streams of wisdom out there that why do you feel this urge? Isn't it rather arrogant of you to, to claim that, that Jesus has something that others do not? I, I, some of you may have ever heard of the, the Zen Buddhist author named, I'm going to mispronounce his name with, with apologies in advance, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. He's 95. He died two days ago. And uh, I heard a podcast over the weekend that, that really read a couple quotes from his book on happiness. And, and, and he says, imagine if you had been exiled to the moon for a year and then somehow you were repatriated to the earth Imagine your experience upon just walking along the seashore, having been on the moon for a year. You would see everything 
with a difference and a gratitude that you had never felt before. And the point of even bringing up that illustration, he says this, you can always have that sense of gratitude. You don't have to be exiled to the moon. You just need to stop and consider it. That's true. This is a Zen Buddhist master. And he is right to say, one may properly see everything with a kind of gratitude. And that's why some people will extol the idea. Why can't we just all sort of get along and just pretend that they're all on streams of faith and tradition in the same way, friends? I don't think Jesus would disagree with, um, with Master Nan. You don't have to be exiled to the moon in order to walk upon the beaches with the supreme gratitude for everything that is. But in the words of a Japanese Christian who converted from Buddhism to Christianity, whose name I have mentioned to you even in recent weeks, his last name was Kanzo, he said this, Buddha is like the moon, but Jesus is like the sun. I I love and admire Buddha, but I worship Jesus. For someone who understands the strength of both traditions, he still understands that they are not the same story. They are not making the same claims, and to pretend that they are is actually to do violence to both. That's why the Dalai Lama says, anybody that tries to put um, a, a Buddhist's head on a Christian is like trying to put a goat's head on a yak. The struggle in representing him, the struggle in in facing rejection is this, beloved. You can still believe that there is great wisdom in a variety from a variety of sources, but you don't have to feel like you need to deconstruct Jesus into something less than Lord. That's the struggle, and I feel it too. And you probably also. But in representing Jesus and being public in action or in word, Those are the places we can find that rejection. And we all have to be aware and be prepared. Now, it's not always got to talk to us about. There is a struggle in representation. But here's where Jesus shifts into a different gear. He he kind of talks about what he faced and what you will face, anybody that's going to be his disciple, be his representative. And then what he does is he just sort of paints a sketch for us about what it means to represent. And this is the hardest part of the passage. Because the instructions that he gives to his disciples, you will notice if you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't say to the disciples, he doesn't say to everybody he encounters the same things that he says to his disciples. The instructions that we find here in the last half of the passage are very context specific. They're very time specific. If you are just at the beginning of a movement, You will need people to leave it all behind and step out and go to where it is unfamiliar to them. And the disciples do. But he doesn't say that to everybody. And so the struggle for me as I try to think about this passage and the struggle for us is to to read these very context, time-specific instructions to figure out what does apply to us. What is universal to every follower of Jesus that still finds a very specific application in these. I'm I'm gonna line out just five principles, I think, in the sketch of what it means to represent him that I think you can find in the last seven verses of the passage. And they all end in the letter Y. You're welcome. Priority, dependency, humility, gravity, and what was the fifth one? Simplicity. Don't worry. These five 
are all kind of diagnostic questions we have to ask ourselves. When it comes to having a sketch of representing him, the first question we all should ask ourselves is this. Do we see it as a shared priority? A shared priority. Now, why do I use the word shared? What does he do? He sends them out two by two. They go together. One confirms the testimony of another. It's more, it, corroboration helps, right? Whatever we think of this priority, whatever it might be, to do it alone is contrary to the original plan. I, I need somebody to remind me of the priority. I will come up with other things to have a priority for. I will need somebody to spur me on to love and good works. You represent that. I represent, it's a mutual edification thing here. I will also need somebody to, to hold me accountable to it because otherwise I will just sort of give up. I will give up. It's a shared priority. What is the priority? What does Jesus do? He, he calls these dudes. He, he invests his life in them. He, he teaches them. And then he sends them out and he entrusts them with authority. And he doesn't say, let, let me know if you ever want to go out. He says, go. What he has for them is a gift to them. Who he is to them, what he will accomplish on their behalf, that is a gift to them. But what he has given to them is more than a gift. It is something that he has entrusted to them. And what does it mean to be entrusted with something? It is meant to be given something that you are then to give away. That what you receive, it's meant to be refracted through you, reflected from you. Beloved, welcome guests, whatever you have been given in him is something that is not meant simply to be kept by you or hoarded by you. It's meant to be given away from you. And that, you know, that just sort of makes sense from a particular psychological perspective. Some, of your, some gifts that you get, they're for you, for your own enjoyment, and exclusively for your enjoyment. And that's, that's part of the wondrousness of it. But there are other gifts that, tell me if I'm wrong, there are some gifts where the joy of having them is compounded by sharing them. Kids, it's very possible that you might have, if you were fortunate, you might have received something at Christmas that when you finally got it up to speed, what was your first reaction? Hey, look! Look! Not, I'm going to go in my room. Look. A shared priority in which that which you have is what you've been entrusted with and therefore it is something that you want to give away. That's our priority. That's the first question we have to ask ourselves in coming up with a sketch of representation. Is it a shared priority? But at the same time it's a priority, the second question is this. Are you acknowledging your dependency? Now, where am I getting that idea? What, what does he tell them? Um, no bag, no food, not a second tunic. Wear your sandals. Footwear is important. All that is for Jesus to say, travel light. What is he asking them to do? <laughs> Look, um, they're not even ready for a camping trip. Oh my gosh. You, you need, where's your water jug, right? What is he in trying to encourage? A, a kind of dependency upon the Lord for the outcome of whatever he has entrusted to them. I'm not saying to you, don't wear adequate footwear. I'm not saying to you, you can bring a coat, but what's the principle at work there? Dependency. 
that anything that you and I might do in trying to manifest the love of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the word of Jesus, unless you and I think that we are entirely dependent on the Lord for the fruitfulness of the effort, we, we have already stepped out on the wrong foot. We are already on the wrong path. No one listens to him unless they are drawn. No one comes to him unless they are drawn. Unless we see it in that realm and in that domain. Look, I know what my inner inclination is. I rarely do stuff that I am not absolutely convinced will be effective and fruitful on the front end. Otherwise, I, I prefer not to try. And maybe that's you. Or maybe you're just like, forget it. Let's just go. We screwed up, we screwed up. That's the mentality we have to all learn to adopt. When you believe that whatever efforts to manifest him and represent him, are, their outcome is really dependent on the part, upon the Lord doing something in and through you, you know what that does? It frees you up to try. It frees you up to fail. Uh, who was it? Beckett? Or, uh, uh, you know, did, 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 you, did you try hard? Yes. Did you fail? Yes, uh, fail harder. When you believe that you're dependent upon him for that, you, again, you are freed up. Do you see it as a shared priority? Are you acknowledging your dependency? And at the same time you're acknowledging your dependency, the third question is this, is whatever you're doing undertaken with humility? Here's the oddest part of Jesus' instructions. He says, now when you go to a town and somebody welcomes you in, Stay there until you leave town. In other words, if you go to a nice place and it's a tiny house, right? 50 square feet. And then you see somebody across the road who's got the three-bedroom place. And you think, I think I'd prefer to stay there. Jesus says, stay where you started. Why? It's a kind of a curious instruction. Why? Why? It's, now, remember, it's a very different culture from ours. You go to towns, hospitality was kind of the rule, not the, I'm going to need to see some ID and three forms of identification. They don't, no, you were welcomed in. But whoever might welcome you in, you show up at the town and you say, hello, may we have lodging. We've come to represent one whom we think uh, believes and, and is someone that you, you might trust also. They would probably welcome you in. Wherever you start, that's where you stay. Because if you decide that you want to find a better place with a better breakfast, in Jesus' mind, that communicates something. That you're in this for morally, more so your well-being than anything else. You're in it for you more than in it for him. And God already has your well-being in mind. All right, again, what would that instruction given to them how did that resonate with us okay jesus says in the sermon on the mount there are forms of spirituality that have all the appearances of integrity but they are really uh, suspicious at the core on at least three different occasions he talks about people who will do things that have all the appearances of integrity and spirituality, but they're only doing it in order that they might be seen. It's a corrupt form. It's a counterfeit form of being for the Lord, giving alms, fasting and praying. There's ways in which you might do it in which you might let everybody know, did you know that I'm fasting and praying? 
It's a counterfeit form of spirituality. And, and Jesus, I think, is trying to say to us through this really instructive principle, the wholeness of our representation of him has to be so, humility has to be so much at its center. Look, if you love yourself more than you love the Lord, then you will never want to offend someone and you will probably be silent. That's not humility. But as I said in my introduction, there are also ways in which you might think of another only as an opportunity to be obedient. And you really don't care who they are, where they come from, what they hold to, what their story is, in which case they're just kind of a, an opportunity to make you feel good about yourself because you were faithful. It's what John Calvin calls a mercenary faith. What are mercenaries? They are given a job, and they do the job, and they're paid for the job, but they don't care about the morality or the motivation behind the job. They're just in it for whatever gain they get. There's a way at coming at representing him that can have something to do with it that has absolutely nothing to do with it and everything to do with you. Between the two of us, my wife and I, she is the far more courageous and robust evangelist of us. But the thing about her evangelism is this. Most, all of the people with whom she ever feels the courage or even kind of throws out something there is sort of a, wait, you want to talk about this? Every one of those people she has cultivated a friendship over years. And if somehow I were able to do an inventory of all of the people in whom she has a friendship with, where at some point she's had a conversation about things that are deeper than just the issue that brought them together, I am absolutely certain that every single one of them would be convinced that she loves them. Because humility is at the center of it. Is it a shared priority that's done in dependency that has at its center humility? Fourth question related to humility is this. Do we feel the gravity of representation? And here's the, maybe the most sobering part of the t- passage, right? Jesus says, you go to a place. Remember, it's in a culture that hospitality is the rule. But he says, if you go to a place and they say, you want to do what? Get out of here. No. And you can find no one. And they're all like, they all gang up and say, forget it. We're circling the wagons. Get out of our town. That would have been weird for them. That would have been bizarre. That kind of lack of hospitality would have been rude. And what does Jesus say to do? It's a very Jewish thing. You take off your sandals and you shake the dust off your feet as a warning to them. And that's what that whole thing is. It's it's not about just clean your feet. It's about a symbolic gesture of Do you know what you're doing? There are some warnings that people give, and boy do we feel it now, that really are just sort of a self-righteous indignation. Do you know what you're doing? There's no love in it. It's just this awful, shameful, self-righteous indignation. But there are some warnings that are full of love. And this warning is that there is a significance to rejecting this out of hand. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be 
is moderately important. You should sleep in if this is a joke. I would be. If it's not a joke, then we are, it is worthy of our utmost attention. And therefore, oh, look, if, if Jesus is, is not true, then the dust is just the dust. And okay, those guys are really passionate. Let them go. Glad they never came in. But if it is true, then the warning in love is most appropriate and fitting. Which gets us to the last point. It's a, a priority, a dependency, a humility. Do we feel the gravity? But finally, have we found the simplicity? It says he instructs them, he sends them out, and what do they do? They go and preach repentance, and they cast out demons, and they heal the sick. Now, that one verse could be its own sermon, and I will not try to devote as much attention to all of it or in its entirety, because how does that apply to us? It's really simple. Here's the deal. What does it mean to represent Jesus in the world? To believe that there is a darkness all around us and within us, and he has come to heal us, And the way we find his healing is to turn to him and away from every other self-salvation project we have picked up along the way. Every opportunity to figure out a way to make ourselves feel good about ourselves or justify ourselves in the sight of whoever is important to us, mom, dad, brother, boss, teacher, coach, mentor, everybody whose pleasure we might live for. Jesus is saying, if you will live for the pleasure of God, how you live for the pleasure of everybody else will change. There is darkness cast around us. There is darkness within us. He's come to heal us and to find us healing. You have to repent. You have to turn. That's the simplicity of the gospel. We're prone to make it complicated. But we have to find its simplicity. That's it, friends. That's a sketch of representation. It has a priority that requires a dependency that's done in humility in which we feel the gravity so that we find its simplicity. And already you're feeling like, uh, I've been loaded up with about 15 different packages there and I'm going to fall and I'm going to give up. And I get it. It sounds wearying. And that's why the last thing I want to say to you is I think this text implies for us where does the strength come from to be public where does the strength come from to be a representative in his name in what we do what we live for what we vote on how we aspire how we risk how we sacrifice what we say what we invite conversation in i think there's only one thing where we find the strength you know what it is his rejection He alludes to his experience of rejection there in the synagogue, but what is that? That's just a hint of the rejection still to come. He will be rejected in every way imaginable at a cross. And where does the strength come from that? When you reflect upon his rejection, what it accomplished, something shifts. It's by what he accomplished that you are forgiven. That your sin is forgiven. That the corruption that you feel deep down in your most private moments that you wish you could shake and you can't, his love is everlasting for you. 
that you are reconciled to God, even though you were once an enemy of his. And though you might be afraid of death, your death may be thought of differently on account of him emerging from death. What he accomplished in his rejection is meant to give us strength. And what that accomplished, you know what it reveals? That you had no other options. That the forgiveness that you want, the reconciliation that you need, the hope that you might have, as much as you might want to craft it and find it for yourself, you will come up empty. What he did for you in his rejection was necessary. But what he did for you in his rejection was absolutely wanted by him. He not only had to do it, he was willing to do it. Kids, I know there are exceptions to this rule, but look, if there was a way to take the entirety of your mother's pregnancy, during it, birthing you, caring for you. I mean, some of you have run the camcorder 24-7 since that time. But if there was a way to summarize everything that she did for your good, every pain that she felt, every struggle that she went through, in order to bring you to this moment, if you could somehow see all of that and feel it, the next time that she says, would you please pick up your socks? You will think of it differently because you will have reckoned with what she has gone through to bring you to this moment. And if you can't reckon with it, I can't help you. I think the principle is the same. If you and I could regularly reckon with what he has done for us on our behalf, that somehow we are not so important as to be silent because we're afraid to offend, but we also have come to see others as he has seen us with a kind of love and respect and curiosity and delight in who others might be in our place or in our midst, that we see them first. That's how we represent him. That's where we find the strength for it. And that's why we got to come to this table. Because otherwise I will just stay in the shadows and be content with giving you a sermon. But representing him is more. And representing him is a privilege. Beloved, this is ours. We pay it forward in his strength on the basis of what he's done. And for that we give thanks. And that is why, before we come to this table we should be honest with ourselves about ourselves to him. Like I've said before, your spouse or your friend makes a dinner and you have this awful knockdown, drag out fight beforehand. If you think you can just sort of sit down and eat the meal and have fellowship with them before you've dealt with that, no. Same thing. Let's publicly confess our sins and then take a moment to offer whatever confession that we might have of our own private sins. And then let me remind you of what he has done on our behalf that you might still come to this table and eat and drink of it worthily knowing that you're a sinner. So if we have that slide, and I don't remember if we do, let's read this public confession of sin together with our bifocals on. And then let's be quiet. You asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment 
and then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak of your great love and against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me. I gave a small part so that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you only when it is convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me, renew me, send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. Take a moment. Beloved, here. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Thanks be to God. Here's the deal. On the night that he was betrayed, he had bread on hand, and he took it, and he blessed it, and then he broke it. And he said, this is me, and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took that cup. And after blessing it, he said, this cup is me. This cup is my blood in the new covenant. Drink this as often as you will in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, beloved, and drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You represent him. And therefore, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. This table is for those who identify with Jesus in baptism. This table is for those who identify with his church, believing that they belong to him in and through it. This table is is those who for believe themselves sinners, but who see Jesus as one who has come gladly to save. If this describes you, this table is for you. And I encourage you when the moment comes to come and partake. If this moment does not yet describe you, I would ask that you remain seated and pray. Reflect, think, to consider that his love for you is everlasting and his arms are always open. As I pray, would our servers please come forward to prepare themselves. And as the ushers tell you to come forward, come forward at the appointed time. If the servers will come forward, let's pray. Father, these elements you have given to us that we might do this as often as we will. That we might not simply remember, though surely we should, but that somehow in it you are present to us and that you mean to strengthen us by it, to convict us, to reassure us, to bless, to provide, and to give us what we need for the way ahead to be faithful again, even when we have been unfaithful before, 
And even when we struggle to be faithful in this week, we thank you that your love is everlasting and that it is without limit. Surely you've shown it. Surely you've represented that to us. Would you help us now to find strength through this table, to find the strength to represent you in our world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.